immigrants are everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere in this country. They're working everywhere. They're your neighbors. They're, they go to school with you. They're your teachers. They're your doctors. Just talk to them. Just talk to these people on a human level. Nusrat is a lawyer, specialing in immigration law, based in Los Angeles. Formerly, she worked as an asylum officer for the U.S. government, deciding credible and reasonable fear claims for asylum seekers. During her career with USCIS, she processed refugee applications along the Thai-Myanmar border. She's advocated for the rights of LGBT persons, prisoners, and survivors of torture. My name is Graham High. I'm a straight white guy. After the 2016 U.S. presidential election, I realized that there was plenty of talking and not a lot of listening, especially from people like me. I'm not a trained therapist. I'm just a guy who wants to understand people who are different from me, who live lives that aren't like mine. People like Nasrat. We met with Nusrat at her home office during a heat wave in LA. You can hear the fans blowing in the background. Where we pick up the interview, I just noticed a map of Pakistan hanging on her wall. This is Straight White Guy Listening. Both my parents were born in India, but um, they migrated to Pakistan when partition happened, when India and Pakistan split up. And so that's where they're from. This is one of my dad's old maps. And I don't know what he has highlighted here along the coast. I don't know if he was planning a road trip or something, but yeah. So you can see, like, this is Kashmir, which is disputed territory. Where's Karachi? Um, there it is. So that's, I, every summer as a kid, I would go to Karachi, spend all summer in Karachi. And then I went back a few times as an adult, too. But it's like the New York of Pakistan. It's like the biggest city. And it's pretty crazy. So like very cosmopolitan, but also crazy uh, or? No, crazy and not cosmopolitan. Okay. <laughs> not like New York in that way, uh -huh. just in terms of how big it is. And it's like a port city. But, um, you know, it was fun when I was a kid, but it definitely changed a lot when I went back as an adult. Both my perception of things changed and also conditions there changed a lot. So it was like post 9-11 when I went back as an adult and things were very different. Some things were the same, just worse. Like there were always a lot of Afghani refugees and orphans and stuff on the street because, you know, Afghanistan has been like, you know, subject to like war and for like a long, long time. So, you know, there was that wave from like the Soviet era. And then like even after that, it just a lot of people, like all the landmines, a lot of people who were maimed from landmines, a lot of orphans, just from other warfare and stuff going on there. But after 9-11, it was like crazy a lot worse. Is it more militarized around there as well? It's just displaced people that, and then they're also going to the biggest city to find work. You know, they're, they're displaced from Afghanistan. There are also a lot of people from like Punjab, which is, is this Punjab? Yeah, this is Punjab. This is like the breadbasket. And so, but there's like feudalism basically still exists in Pakistan. So a lot of like peasant farmers will come to Karachi to find work and other cities too. Islamabad is the capital, of course, which is 
There it is. When I was a kid, I always wanted to go. Like there are these amazing historic like archaeological sites in um, Mohenjo-daro, but it was so dangerous. Like we couldn't even drive there because of bandits and stuff. Like you'd get robbed and um, so like all my life, even though I've been to Pakistan so many times, I've only ever been to Karachi. I've never even been to Islamabad. Would you want to go one day, or is it still that dangerous where it's... Um, I want to go. I mean, it's dangerous for reasons other than what most Americans think. There, it's like more of a law and order, a lot of desperate people. Yeah, there's like other, there's like militants and stuff, but like, and there's that side of things, but it's, I mean, there's been unrest there for so long. Um, it's a really hard place to be poor and a lot of people are very desperately poor. And then there are the people who have a lot of money, who are the landowners, and you know, they kind of, they're fine anywhere. It, that's probably the bigger problem more than, that I've seen more than anything else. Let's have a seat. If, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of start on a personal level, kind of see how you got involved and why you were drawn to helping out people. I was always interested in doing civil rights and human rights work. And um, initially when I came out of law school, that's what I did. I worked for nonprofits. My first job out of law school was at a nonprofit. It's called Freedom House Detroit, and it's a shelter and we provided legal services to survivors of torture. Um, and it was generally asylum, which I'll talk about a little bit more and explain that process a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, why I was interested in it, I guess, yeah, I mean, you, as I said, like, I went to Pakistan a lot as a kid. I've always seen refugees. I've always seen people that were victims of warfare and how difficult life was for them. I mean, going as a kid and seeing a kid on the street who, you know, were the same age and they're so in such a desperate state, it, it's really impactful. You know, you, you don't forget that. Um, I initially started out doing more like prisoner rights kind of stuff um, because I also have a brother who's in prison for 40 years. I have another brother who's in and out of prison who's mentally ill. I mean, he's been out for a long time, so that's good. But, you know, just seeing that kind of revolving door between how mental health services were cut off and how prison populations exploded and that kind of thing, um, those things really impacted me. So I wanted to do something to try to help. And then it kind of, immigration law was like a natural progression from that because I think it's the best way to be involved in human rights law domestically. Um, you know, because it's a pretty small proportion of lawyers who can work for the UN or something, you know, that's like the dream, right? But like, in reality, you know, there are a lot of people that do amazing work every day and they do it domestically and they do it here. And um, whether it's like people working for one of many nonprofits all around the country, or even a lot of the people that work for the government, because I used to work for the government too. Um, you know, they're, a lot of them are, you know, they've been motivated by the same things and they're trying to work in the public interest. So, um, so that's why I got into immigration law. I started off just doing asylum and refugee related stuff. I only made the transition to practicing in other areas of immigration law about a year and a half ago, a year and a half to two years ago. Um, my last job was for the government as an asylum officer. So I worked for Homeland Security as an asylum officer and then I went into private practice. So my first job was like, I, most of the people were 
from sub-Saharan Africa, like various West, Central, West and Central African countries. And then um, working for the government, I saw people from everywhere. Um, and then now most of my clientele are um, people from Mexico or Central America, um, especially Mexico. So it's definitely different kinds of stories, different kinds of backgrounds that I'm dealing with. But there is still quite a lot of, um, there's still a lot of asylum seekers. Um, their cases aren't as easy to win as people from other parts of the country where, or excuse me, parts of the world where, you know, it's like definitely global scale conflicts and stuff. You know, it's, it's a different, it's a lot of gang related stuff, cartel related stuff. And the law in the United States especially doesn't necessarily recognize those situations as meriting asylum or refugee status. It, ha it has to fit into very narrow categories for it to count as that. Uh, I mean, what does it kind of look like working as an asylum officer or an immigration? Um, well, for asylum specifically, because I can only speak to asylum and refugee. I did refugee resettlement. Um, I worked as a refugee resettlement officer in Thailand for a short period of time working with um, people from who were fleeing violence in northern Burma or Myanmar. Um, so I did some refugee resettlement work, but the vast majority of my work was as an asylum officer. Refugee resettlement is a whole other thing, which I'll explain that too. But asylum, what usually happens is someone is already in the country, they fill out an application, um, and they are supposed to do it within one year of arriving in the United States for it to be timely. And then they just you know, the application generally explains why they're fleeing, why they want protection in the U.S. Um, so then they submit an application, they wait a long time, they get an interview. Interviews are, I mean, really backlogged in the Los Angeles asylum office. People are waiting a really long time. I don't know what it is right now, but it's, it's a long time. I mean, it can be years for some people. Yeah, so then you fill out an application, you wait for an interview. Then I'm the person that interviews a person. Um, I interview them to get their story, to try to figure out, first, the first part is make sure they're telling the truth as best as I can figure that out. And the second part is um, seeing if their situation qualifies for protection under the law, because there are very specific categories for protection. You have to be persecuted, which has a legal definition, based on your race, religion, nationality, um, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, which is kind of like, um, a lot of different situations might fit into that last one. That's where a lot of the lawyering happens. You know, if you have a situation where it's like not clear cut, that's you try to kind of fit into that. Um, so they come before you. They, the interview can last anywhere from two hours to four hours. It's not usually four hours. It's usually two hours. Um, and then I make a decision, um, and you know, either you get asylum or you don't get asylum. And in most cases, you. I send you to see the judge, and then the judge decides after a hearing, and it's usually a long process, whether or not you can um, qualify for asylum. Refugees, it's a whole other thing. Like some of the refugees I was working with, they were, I mean, there were entire generations that were born and raised in the refugee camp, which is crazy. I mean, because the conflicts that necessitated the creation of these camps occurred like in the 90s. I mean, it's still going on, it's not over. But these people have to register with the UNHCR, they have to get their certificate. Um, 
showing they're a refugee. It's a very long process, very long. And um, you can be selected, you pick certain countries that you can go to, you are selected by one of those countries, one of them being the US, Canada also resettles, a lot of countries resettle these refugees. And then you go through a very long security vetting procedure, you get your fingerprints done, you have uh, multiple interviews, the last of which is with a representative from the government of the country where you wish to be resettled. Um, that person interviews you, you do more, you are constantly doing background checks on you, um, your entire family, anytime a new person is born it triggers an event where you have to get more background checks, more fingerprints, um, name checks on every name you've ever used, check on every contact you've had, you know, like, um, you know, if you name certain people, then you verify the story with them. It's, it's a really involved process. And then eventually you get approval, you get your visa, and then you travel to the United States, um, which can be pretty culturally shocking for pe some people, most people, especially in these camps. Like, these people were from really remote areas in northern Myanmar, and like, they had set up in the camp like a fake American style apartment. So people knew how to use a doorknob and like, this is how you use a fridge. This is what a fridge is. You go grocery shopping, you buy things like this. It's, it can be really like daunting, you know, because it's a totally different climate. So the people applying for refugee status haven't been to the US at all necessarily. No. The refugee status, you're abroad, asylum, you're in the US. So I explained asylum, then there's a whole nother thing called credible fear and reasonable fear screenings. So all the people that you heard about crossing, let's say the US-Mexico border or who are at airports and they claim fear of returning to their country, because otherwise they can be sent back very quickly um, through a process called expedited removal. But if you claim that you have fear of returning to your country, the US is obligated as a signatory to the you know, various international conventions to protect refugees to not return those people until they have some adjudication of their claim. So then, an asylum officer interviews a person, you make a threshold screening. Is this person afraid to go back? Did they make like a basic showing that they could have a case for asylum? Yes, then they get to see a judge. So these are people that are generally crossing the US-Mexico border and usually fleeing from gang activities? Um, well, there are people not just from Mexico and Central America that cross the border. There are also people from, a lot of people from India, some people from China. They make a journey all the way from South America through um, all the way to Me the Mexico-U.S. border sometimes. But most of them, the vast majority, are from Mexico and then Central America. Most people were fleeing violence of some kind. It was unsafe for them to stay where they were. But a lot of them, the way the law was interpreted, is interpreted right now by DHS. Um, it's very difficult to qualify for asylum if your violence is at the hands of a gang or a cartel. Um, because you, ha you have to have some government involvement and the way you show government involvement is complicated. So, or it has to be based on a protected ground, like your race, your religion, you know, things like that. So, yeah, if you really investigate these situations, you can show that in some of these cases, and if not a lot of these cases, especially government involvement. But they don't have a very liberal interpretation of that, unfortunately. So you would have to show some kind of government collusion with the violence, even if it's 
gang related. Yeah. So there are two different things. There's asylum protection and then there's protection under the Convention Against Torture. So for asylum, it has to be based on one of those five grounds I mentioned, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. And then it has to be very serious harm. And then you have to show that either the government was harming you directly or the government knew you were being harmed and um, they were unable or unwilling to protect you. So, you know, do you show that through the evidence and testimony and stuff like that? Then there's Convention Against Torture. For Convention Against Torture, you don't have to, the harm doesn't have to be based on those five grounds. It can be any harm, but it has to be at the level of torture, which is very serious harm. Um, and for torture, you have to show that it was either the government doing it or the government was turning a blind eye to it. Like they knew it was happening and they did nothing about it. They, it was willful blindness. How do you prove something like that? I know, it seems pretty, um, it's kind of an amorphous thing, right? It's, but I think the, well, some of the ways people could do it was, um, for instance, to say, I told the police, I reported it, I told them they were coming for me that night. The police said, we can't do anything for you go away, which happens a lot, unfortunately. Or maybe they were the people that were harming you were working with the police and they said, oh, don't bother going to the police, we work with that guy or whatever. And then there was like some good reason to believe that or proof that that was actually the case. Yeah, to put it simply, but yeah, those are some ways you can maybe show it. So you have people from all over the country escaping from some, or the world rather, mm -hmm. from all the world escaping some dire circumstance, like torture, or just even by virtue of being in a refugee camp, being born into one, mm -hmm. uh, or fleeing war, I guess, is another yeah. big one. Yeah, and the reason why people are in refugee camps is because they're fleeing war or some kind of conflict, so that's why they end up where they are. Like the people in northern Myanmar were ethnic minorities that were being targeted by the government, probably because of, they wanted their resources or the land, but it was a long, very long um, kind of um, history of the government persecuting these people, going to their villages, burning them down, raping women, killing people, um, forcing the people to be porters and give most of their you know, agricultural products to the soldiers that were in the area. And then there were like militant groups that developed to resist it and then accusing them of belonging to those militant groups. I mean, it's like the story that you hear from everywhere all over the world. It's a similar kind of pattern. Maybe you could walk me through it um, as far as from the refugee point of view. I've never been to the U.S. I'm trying to escape a certain situation. I mean, how do you even find somebody to help you get to the point to eventually get a plane ticket to the U.S. Uh -huh. to get resettled? I mean, how do you make that leap? I mean, you hear a lot of terrible stories where people didn't make it, but often people will flee in groups or they'll try to keep their family group together. And it's word of mouth, a lot of it, um, but the U.N. is, UNHCR is supposed to set up these refugee camps and these, you know, to protect people who are fleeing these situations when they see a crisis happening. They're supposed to set up these camps, right? And then I'm sure that they have various mechanisms of trying to inform people of going there, but people generally 
I can't say exactly how they figure it out. I think it's generally word of mouth, people telling each other, but I'm sure they have information campaigns to do it as well, to spread that information. And then once you're in the refugee camp, they do UNHCR tries its best. And then they work with various other organizations on the ground, various NGOs, um, to register everyone, to get everyone registered with the UNHCR. Then you get a certificate showing that you are a refugee. That's the first part of it. Um, and then you go through the very long resettlement process, which can take, I mean, in the case of pe some people from Myanmar, it was like taking decades. And then they come to a country where they've likely never even been to, mm -hmm. or even necessarily speak the language? There are different educational um, opportunities, but they're not great. I mean, life in a refugee camp is not nice at all. It can be very dangerous. I mean, they get food, obviously, um, but in the case of the refugee camps in northern Thailand, you get, you get your rice portions and you get fish paste or something, but people try to grow their own vegetables, too, to supplement it. But you're in a very small hut you're sharing with a, quite a few people, and then they're very close together, and you're not supposed to leave that camp at all. You're not allowed to, in Thailand, you're not allowed to work. You can't leave the camp. Your whole life is spent in the camp, in this small area that's very contained and isolated. I think like maybe two of the people I interviewed when I was in Thailand spoke English. You know, it's a completely, imagine living your entire life in a very small, isolated refugee camp, then coming to Milwaukee or something, I don't know. But yeah, this must be a, a huge shock. They're really looking to get the fundamental necessities of life, just safety first and foremost. I mean, they have gone through some, they witnessed and experienced, or they know family members about witnessing or experiencing terrible things. The younger people didn't necessarily know that, that totally grew up in the refugee camp, which kind of blew my mind. It's like, I would interview someone that was like really young, like 18 or something, and, um, try to ask them about their claim and they have to say certain things to like make a good claim and obviously they have a good claim I mean, they're fleeing violence from northern Myanmar like they're part of this ethnic minority that's persecuted but a lot of them weren't completely aware of what was going on because they had lived their entire lives in this isolated camp and so and I, it would come down to this where it'd be like okay do you know why you're here in this camp like I don't know it was just crazy. Yeah, you know? that's just all they know, but they don't yeah. necessarily know why. But that wasn't always the case. There were definitely lots of people that obviously had personally experienced a lot of terrible things and could talk about it. On the refugee level, Syria is a big one right now, and that's the one that most people hear about. And I know that's not necessarily your direct experience, but there's people being displaced all over Europe, and then there's distrust of people coming in, uh, fears of terrorism. And of course now with the administration, their, their argument is that they're trying to keep America safe, but that's changing the whole legal uh, workings of immigration. Yeah. I mean now, just with all that in mind, I mean, have you felt the shift? Can you feel it legally, uh, just on your level, how things are changing? Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, and I did represent a couple of Syrian people. I interviewed plenty of Syrian people that had the fortune of already being in the U.S. But, um, yeah, it's made a huge impact. At the beginning with the travel ban, it, was a, it made a huge impact. I mean, imagine people that had gone through this entire refugee process, which I'm telling you how long it takes. I mean, people growing up generations in a refugee camp, finally getting to the end point of getting their visa and coming to the U.S. and being told, no, you can't come after all of that, 
after everything that they have gone through and all of the crazy vetting that's already going on right now, it's pretext, you know? It's based on um, bigotry and um, stereotypes of people that are just completely untrue. And, you know, what's going on with these people is that they're fleeing just abhorrent violence and looking for just the, like I said, the basics of life, uh, shelter, safety, um, not, you know, having some food to eat, that's it, you know. They're victims of terrorism. They're not perpetrators of terrorism. And it's just like, if you look at even the numbers, I mean, not even getting to like how anti-Muslim bigotry was obviously a huge part of the Trump campaign and is part of some like collective fear that a lot of Americans have for the reasons why it's like the way it's fed to them in the media and things like that. But it doesn't even need to be said. So it's like annoying to me that I'm even saying it, but like it's such a tiny minuscule proportion of people who commit terrorist acts that claim to be Muslim compared to the Muslim population of the world, number one. Number two, the number one victims of terrorists are other Muslims. And number three, most Muslims don't consider these people Muslims. The vast majority of the millions and millions and millions of Muslims in the world do not consider these people to be Muslim. I was raised Muslim. I do not identify. I'm not Muslim anymore, I, but most of my family is. Since not even a little bit before 9-11, but since 9-11, we've been dealing with it. Our family has been dealing with it. It's had serious impacts, a serious impact in my life. And um, seeing other people go through it on such, um, such an important legal process to have legalized discrimination work against them is just disgusting. It's really awful. That's plain and simple. That's what it is. And it's trying to, you know, pander to people, the lowest common denominator at the expense of people who are the most desperate and in most need of help. It's really ugly. Practically speaking, the way it's worked is obviously there is a travel ban. Beyond that, there were other internal memoranda within DHS telling people not to take any final actions on any applications submitted by anyone from the seven countries. So we didn't, part of the problem is it's, it's chaotic. And people that work in the government, most of them don't like it because, apart from ICE maybe, but most of them don't like it because, you know, it's chaotic. They don't know what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do. So I had Syrian clients that were so desperate, they're like, I'm just going to go to Canada. I'm going to try to, and the thing is, they can't just go to Canada either. They have to go to Canada that's not at a normal border crossing. Because if they go to Canada through a normal border crossing, they come under this legal um, category in this agreement between the US and Canada called the Safe Third Country Agreement where they can't apply for asylum in Canada because they've applied in the US. So they, that's why all those people that were crossing in the middle of winter and one woman died of hypothermia and all this terrible stuff was happening, they're doing it because they have to avoid the border crossings legally to get in, not through a port of entry, and then claim asylum, then they can go through the process. So it's creating, it's really impacting people and it's really hurting people. You know, these are human beings, it's affecting, you know? And on the other side of things, even with immigration across the board, there are people being detained left and right. Um, it's happening a lot. I mean, people still have legal rights. They still have a Fifth Amendment due process right in immigration proceedings. They don't have full constitutional rights because they're not US citizens, but they have certain protections that are like fundamental. 
but yeah, a lot of people are getting detained that have only had like traffic offenses, um, you know, sometimes like minor what's considered fraud. But like if you're using a fake ID because you don't you can't get a real ID because you don't have status, things like that. The Trump administration also um, cut off like government attorneys from closing certain cases that they were able to close before because they were not priorities. I mean, as one immigration judge put out when I was in court the other day, under, and he's pretty conservative, he said, under this administration, everyone's a priority and no one's a priority because nothing can get done. The courts are ground to a halt. They're completely overloaded as it is. Now it's getting worse. I mean, even functionally speaking, it's not working, but it's really hurting a lot of people, for sure. We all know that no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, like government is a bureaucracy. It takes a long time, no matter what. And it sounds like this is making things harder, but it also sounds like some of the bureaucracy is meant to slow it down, to make things more difficult for people coming in, even if it's not 100% effective. Is, I mean, is the overall intent to dissuade people I, I guess that's an opinion that I think it I mean my opinion is yes <laughs> that is that I mean especially certain people um, and that's been the policy even under Obama like and just generally for decades trying to slow down the migration of people from Mexico and Central America there's a very um, well-documented racist history to US immigration policy a lot of decisions on who could immigrate to the U.S. were based on race, clearly, like blatantly in the law. You know, that hasn't completely gone away. It's supposed to for the most part, but there's a lot more leeway with immigration in terms, like I said, people who are not citizens of the United States don't get full constitutional rights because, you know, they're not citizens and also they're not on U.S. soil necessarily. Once they are, then they get certain protections. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, someone from a more conservative side of things would say, oh, we want the best people coming here. If that, I mean, if that, that's like being a more prog like progressive conservative person, I guess. You know, for better or worse, it's happening. Like, that's the reality of the situation. You're talking about two countries next to each other that have very different situations, economically, in terms of their stability, you're, I mean, it's going to happen. It's only natural that people are going to try to come here. But yeah, a lot of these policies, the, all the detention policies, all of it is, that's not even an opinion. It's blatantly designed and clearly, like, openly acknowledged as designed to deter people from coming to the U.S. Even though de detaining asylum seekers with the express purpose of deterring them from coming to the U.S. may be in violation of our international obligations, Never mind that, but that is the general idea. Yeah, I mean, the Trump administration is cutting every program back, including like the highly skilled workers, things like that, to try to cut down the number of people that are immigrating, even under those programs where they're highly qualified individuals and have like, you know, very rare skill sets and things like that. It sounds like there's a lot of agencies at work, a lot of different departments trying to navigate these laws that keep getting implemented and overturned and then changed and it was already as you mentioned before a patchwork of yeah. laws mm -hmm. 
how does all this work together? I mean, how do you stay informed? How does this machine keep going? Um, a lot of it for an attorney is through practice, you know, and constantly communicating with other attorneys, knowing what's going on in the field. I mean, basically, so immigration used to be INS. It's not INS anymore. Um, now it's generally falls, okay, so you have USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Service. You have ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. You have CBP, Customs and Border Protection. So ICE and CBP are enforcement. USCIS is like administrative stuff, like applications for visas, asylum applications. Um, that all falls under the Department of Homeland Security. And then there's EOIR, which is the Executive Office for Immigration Review. That falls under the Department of Justice. So you have DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and Department of Justice. Um, obviously, all of this falls under the executive branch. This is something maybe some people on the left are missing that were like not understanding how impactful the Trump administration would have been after the election, is that as the head of the executive branch of government, you have a lot of power in terms of how that how various agencies work and how they operate and stuff, with limitations, obviously. But the Department of Justice isn't necessarily linked to the judicial branch. So immigration courts are not Article Three courts, so they're not under the judiciary branch. They're administrative courts. They fall under the executive branch of government. Now, the way, like, let's say you're, going, you're a person going through the immigration process and you're going through court, the court process. So let's say you apply for asylum, you get rejected, you have to go see a judge. You go to the Los Angeles Immigration Court. You have your hearings. You get rejected. Then you go to what's called the BIA, Board of Immigration Appeals. It's also an administrative body. You write your appeal. They reject it. Then you can go into the court, actual court system, the under the Article Three court. Almost like everything you're dealing with is under the executive branch of government as an immigrant. But hearing you say that is like that. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of money. I mean, is it supplemented by any departments? Or I can't imagine, like, just getting a traffic ticket yeah. is like, yeah, got to pay court fees. So how are these people that are coming in in dire circumstances, or do they just drop out after they're denied? I mean, how does this work? Some people do. I mean, some people try to do things themselves, but there, there are a lot of great organizations that try to help people. There are also a lot of... Um, unscrupulous people like fake lawyers notarios there's a huge problem with that that take advantage of people take their money don't do anything for them or commit fraud it's unauthorized practice law they're not supposed to do it um so there's a lot of that where it's like a person will go to a lawyer and the lawyer will say okay this is going to cost you three thousand dollars and they'll go to a notario and be like oh no i can do it for you for a thousand and then they disappear people spend a lot of money on it and on the government side of things, um, when I was working as an asylum officer, like our salaries were funded by fees because you get a lot of fees too generated from immigration applications being filed. You know, you have so much money coming in from various like visa applications and whatever being filed. Think about all of the people going through the process every time they pay a fee to the government, which is hundreds and hundreds of dollars in one sitting at least, and that goes to the government. It's huge. The system is huge. A number of people involved with it are huge. It's hard to kind of wrap your mind around what, what's going on. I, what I'm trying to get at is it's, it's hard to see it and understand what's happening other than 
families being separated and um, some kind of political agenda. Well, that's the problem is that it's kind of now it's pretty unpredictable. Not to say that it was perfect before, and it was pretty bad before too. People were being separated, families were being separated. It's been happening for a long time. It's always been very difficult for people who are immigrants in this country. And that's why people have been saying for so long that we need immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform. We don't need more you know, piecemeal legislation that's just gonna be nonsensical and create strange inequities in the law. What is immigration reform? What could it look like? Or what are some things that it could do? I can't really go into too much detail about what I think should be done at this point. without I can't speak to it very intelligently. So I can just say on certain topics, I know that like in terms of detention policies, detention policies need to change for sure. Um, it's not only, even if you look at it from a cost perspective, it's costing the government so much money to detain all of these people including women and children, not only ignoring the moral issues with that, but it, it just doesn't make sense to do it. I mean, they have the rates to which at these people, at which these people comply with court orders, showing up to hearings, things like that. It's really high. They show up, put them on orders of supervision. Um, you know, there shouldn't be a one year limit on asylum. It doesn't make sense that if you don't know well enough to apply for this complicated legal procedure within a year, that you know, you don't, it's, you have to meet a much higher standard that's in a totally different way. Um, that's not fair. Like, there are certain things I can speak to. The government always has these interests of, like, preventing fraud, maintaining a predictable, stable immigration system. The policies that are in place now aren't helping that. When I was an immigration officer, there were a lot of unfair results. And even in terms of the fraud stuff, like, I think a lot of that the way that's handled could be changed to actually root out fraud, but make sure the meritorious claims go forward. Not everyone deserves asylum. You know, if you don't qualify, you don't qualify. But there are people that commit fraud to try to get asylum. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's fair to the people who are, you know, merit asylum. Um, and it floods the system and it, you know, people do it because it's easier for them. But the one year bar on applying for asylum doesn't help the fraud issue. I mean, in fact, the people who are engaging in fraud may be more likely to apply within one year because they're part of a human trafficking ring that knows exactly what to do, you know? All I'll say right now is that there needs to be comprehensive uniform. Um, and there are a lot, like American Immigration Lawyers Association, their nonprofit wing, I mean, they have very specific policy recommendations. And, you know, you could probably get in touch with someone from AILA that would definitely talk to you more about policy. I mean, it's a huge problem that's been contentious for a long time. I can't expect you to, can you solve our immigration problem? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, I mean, that gives me a lot better understanding of ways that the immigration policies don't work too. And I, I mean, when you say detention, I mean, I, I hear this word, but I mean, does this mean that people who are apprehended uh, are detained together, like families and women and children in some kind of compound, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not aware of this. I mean, I've heard of detention, but I don't know what that means. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it's jailing people, but they call it detention because it's not supposed to be related to punishment. But 
sometimes it's literally just a separate wing of a county jail for immigrant detainees. And it's like this magical legal, you know, division of like, okay, you're a detainee, you're, you're an inmate, you know, it's this thing. But I actually, when I was an Im immigration officer, I worked at some facilities in South Texas that were, they called them family residential centers. Okay, it was really creepy. I can just tell you that. You have women and children being detained there and people say, oh, it's state of the art, it's really nice. They were supposed to be closed down. I mean, there's a lot of litigation going on around these. But it's trailers in a fenced off, middle of nowhere space, and it's very desolate, and it's detention. People are being held there, and they cannot leave. Um, yeah, and then there are different types of you know, detention centers. There are, a lot of them are they're mostly privately run. Correction Corporation of America runs a lot of them and they profit off of them. They hold people, they wear the, you know, the uniform of an inmate, um, they have to go to chow, it's all the same. I've worked in prisons and I've been to jails too. I know exactly what that is and it's very much like that. It's nicer than a prison, but it's definitely people being you know, held in the same way. And it's expensive too, aside from the moral issues, <laughs> again. I guess for a lot of people are just born in America, that there's this amorphous blob of immigrants, just this faceless group of people coming in and trying to take jobs or be violent or disrupt the American way. If there's some specific instances that you know personally to kind of put a face with who are these people trying to come? Yeah, there was a young woman, I think she was from El Salvador, and she was targeted by, I think it was the Mara Salvatucha gang, which is like a really dangerous gang, of course. It's like one of the two really big gangs there. And they just, some gang members took a liking to her and started harassing her, following her. All she wanted to do was go to school, live a normal teenage life. She just could not do it. Constantly following her around and harassing her until it escalated to the point where, you know, they went to her home, raped her, taped it, you know, to blackmail her. And it's like an initiation thing where people can be, you know, forcibly recruited into a gang. And she didn't want to leave, but she had to, because she would have been killed or had to join the gang. But either way, she would have been subject to really brutal violence. She had some relatives in the U.S. that helped pay for her, pay a coyote to get her to the U.S. border. and crossed over and she turned herself in at the port of entry but you know there are plenty of people that don't. I mean the asylum seekers they have very obviously very dramatic situations usually not always but usually are really dramatic situations where they've escaped. Like I had a client that was a student here from Saudi Arabia and you know they went to school here and they had these feelings to begin with but they you know rejected their religion. They didn't want to be Muslim anymore. You know, they were atheists. And they always had that, but they couldn't really express it in Saudi Arabia. It's, you know, it's a theocracy. So, so, you know, he applied for asylum because he can't go back. And it's sad when you apply for asylum. It's not like it's like the Holy Grail or something, because when you're a refugee, it's a very different thing. You can't go back to your country. If you apply for asylum in the U.S. and protection in the U.S., you cannot go back to the country where you came from, because that's what you're saying is that it's unsafe. So it's... You could imagine how hard that would be for someone. I mean, I've met plenty of people that were brought here as kids, you know, and they didn't really 
know any better and they didn't realize they were undocumented. You can read lots of their stories and a lot of people have been interviewed, but you know, brought us kids and because um, their parents just wanted them to have a fair shot at getting educated and, you know, having a stable, safe environment to live in. And, you know, finding out when they can't get their driver's license that, wait, why can't I get my driver's license? Why can't I get this job? Why don't I have a social security number? And then just like having to live, knowing nothing about the country where you were brought from because you were so young or very little, and then ending up in this situation in the U.S. where it's like, well, I'm American. This is all I know. This is all I've ever known. But the law doesn't recognize you. I, I guess for people that haven't experienced it themselves, I think all they have to do, it's not that difficult. They just have to talk to people around them. Immigrants are everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere in this country. It would be so insane to think that immigrants are rapists and criminals. You know, they're everywhere. They're working everywhere. They're your neighbors. They're, they go to school with you. They're your teachers. They're your doctors. They're people that are working at the restaurants you go to or run the restaurants you go to. It's just talk to them. Just talk to these people on a human level and recognize, like, it's not some big, scary blob of, like, taking your job slash terrorist slash whatever, you know? They're not invisible. I mean, I'm first-generation American. I'm not Pakistani. I mean, I have respect for people from Pakistan. I understand them culturally, um, but I'm American. I had the luck of being born here. I could have been born anywhere in the world, but I'm lucky enough to be born here and have certain opportunities because of that. That's what people forget, is that however bad off you might be, and this is not, you know, detracting from how tough things can be for a lot of Americans who are born in the United States and or their families have been here for some generations. But you're still a lot luckier than a lot of the world just by virtue of the accident of your birth being in this country, in this t legal territory and what attaches to it. Personally, like when we first talked about this, like I had some mixed feelings. I was like, not about you, but to the, you know, white man in general, it's like, I don't care what the white man thinks. The white man can think whatever he wants. I'm gonna live my life the way I want. I'm, it's not my job to teach someone. People need to educate themselves. But I guess this is one way for them to do it. You know, I, because honestly, especially after Trump was elected, a lot of brown people and minorities were tired. We're tired of having to explain ourselves all the time, tired of having to explain our situations, show how good we are, model minority, all that BS. I mean, even with like me personally, like I have a lot of like some feelings about that considering like my family's background and stuff and like how, you know, you're supposed to feel some level of shame if you're not this like model minority. It's really ridiculous. To me, it's like on one level, it's like I really don't care what they think, except that I want things to change. I hate that people need to be reminded of this, but just act on the human level. Recognize each other's humanity. Recognize that you have your faults and everybody has their faults. And we're all just trying to get by. You probably have a lot more in common with your immigrant neighbor than you do with someone like Trump. You know, it sucks that we're in the situation we're in right now, but one positive, I guess, is that people are paying a lot closer attention and learning a lot more about how complicated all of this is, that it's not as simple as like, something that drives me crazy is when people say, well, get in line, do things the legal way. It's like, that's not how immigration is. Like, there's no line, you know? There are a million different zigzag ma maze ways of like, 
getting legal status in the U.S., falling out of status, getting back in status, getting status a different way. I'm glad that people might be taking the time now to try to understand that, understand it's complicated. I guess that's one thing I'm hoping comes out of the bad situation we're in right now is that more and more people are educated and have more empathy for the people that are at the receiving end of immigration policy. Straight White Guy Listening is produced by Graham High and Rebecca Breithaupt. To watch a short film of this conversation and for other episodes, please visit our website at straightwhiteguylistening.com or follow us at SWG Listening on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The SWGL team is Morgan Hanner, Jen Lopez, Alexis Schmidtberger, Sunanda, and Brittany High. Special thanks to Nusrat, to Altimeter Films and the Eisenberg Group, to Jade Kane and Rob Schulte. All music composed by Poddington Bear and provided by the Free Music Archive. If you'd like to learn more about immigration to the United States, check out the American Immigration Lawyers Association at AILA.org. Their Immigration 101 page is a good place to start. On how to help international refugees, visit the International Rescue Committee at help.rescue.org. Thank you for listening.